The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Is your organization a talent magnet? Is your culture the envy of the business market? Top organizations need top leaders. Make sure that you are that leader. This show will ensure that you are. Welcome to I Lead, The Leadership Connection with Dr. Linda Sharkey. Leaders today are more than just results. They are about creating legacies of great people, driving winning organizations, and raising the bar for themselves and that of their teams. Now, here is your host, Dr. Linda Sharkey. Welcome to I Lead, the Leadership Connection, and thanks so much for everybody who listens into this show. I just have such a great listenership. It's it's very exciting, and it's global, which also is very exciting to me. I, I get feedback and questions from people all over the world. Um, very important aspect. So uh, you heard me talk last week about Marshall. Of course, you know, I'm a founding member of the Marshall Goldsmith Group, and for those of you that don't know, I have a uh, two-day develop the coach internally or coaching for high-performance program built off of the concepts that Marshall has spearheaded. And Marshall just recently did an article again on it in um, his LinkedIn feed. And it is a great way to bring coaching using Marshall's perspective internally into your organization because not everybody uh, can afford to have a, uh, a a top-notch coach like Marshall or myself, but building an organization that believes in and coaches each other where leaders and managers learn how to coach their employees or people that work with them, building coaching circles, building peer coaching environments is a way to build a culture of really constructive, positive feedback and one where people learn from each other, work together to really move the needle forward and build as much innovation and learning into the organization. It is a, I believe that coaching for the 21st century is going to be one of those sort of DNA musts that every organization must have. So why am I talking about coaching so much? Well, one of the reasons is I'd, I'd like you to contact me and, and, um, and, and talk about how we could make or help you become that really great coaching culture for developing your people, not only for today, but for the future, but also because my guest today is a very good friend of Marshall Goldsmith's. And I am grateful uh, for having an opportunity to meet with Rita Gunther McGrath, really, who is a leading expert. I, I was so impressed with what Rita had to say, uh, what she was thinking about, the concepts she's, she's thinking about for the 21st century, because we all know, those of you that listen to this show know that one of the things that I'm writing about and my next book is about is 
how many of the things from the 21st, 20th century are not going to play going forward. And companies that cannot redefine themselves, cannot think through how they need to do things differently and let go of those things in the past that may have been great, but it's like having a smartphone without a SIM card, need to be redefined for the 21st century to make sure that you're not that buggy whip uh, that's, that's, that, that's gone away, but that you sustain yourself and you not become obsolete. So I met Rita, and she is just a phenomenal powerhouse. She's the professor of business uh, at, uh, at Columbia Business School in New York. She's one of the world's leading experts on strategy in highly uncertain and invo- volatile environments. She works with the icons of the Global 1000, um, She's co-authored numerous books on strategy, but in particular, what I liked is that Rita's got a fabulous book, The End of Competitive Advantage, and how to keep your strategy moving as fast as your business. It really resonated with me when I got the book and I read the book. It resonated that the whole notion of how we did strategy previously is just not going to be the way we need to do strategy going forward. So, Rita, I'm thrilled to have you with me today. Thanks so much for agreeing to join the show. It's just great to have you join the show. It's a real pleasure to be here. Well, thank you very much. And so, it's a fabulous book. I I read it cover to cover. Uh, Many of the things really resonated with me, and I'm I'm hoping uh, that people will... Get a copy of it, Rita, because every business leader today that's trying to think through how they uh, advance the strategy needs to read this book and, frankly, needs to bring you into their organization. I know you agree with that. (laughs) That would be delightful. Wouldn't it? (laughs) Absolutely. So why, uh, you know, why, uh, tell us a little bit about, you know, the end of competitive advantage and why you start with that kind of concept and, and thinking. Sure. Well, the the reality of strategy today is that a lot of the tools and frameworks we are using really originated in the post-World War II American-European large-scale manufacturing sort of industries. And the idea right. was that you found an attractive position in an attractive and growing industry, you threw up as many entry barriers as you could, and then you enjoyed that position for a long time. And right. the name of the game was scale and scope and efficiency and, and global production, right? Um, right. Well, that was in the 60s and 70s, and we're still using right. those tools and frameworks. Right. So the very idea of sustainable competitive advantage really came from an era when American and European firms pretty much had the world of themselves. You know, China right. was shut. India wasn't trading. Uh, it was pre-digital, you know, in, in, in all practical aspects. Um, South America wasn't developed, you know, on and on. Asia wasn't particularly powerful. Um, and so this notion that you could actually have a sustainable competitive advantage that lasts for a long period of time, in my opinion, can be a real trap when you're in more volatile or fast-paced environments. Because what ends up happening is people go into defensive mode. They try to protect the advantages that they have, and they're not willing to really make the investments in getting into the next thing. Yeah. Um, Uh, In a way, isn't that what happened to the auto industry? Yes, yes, uh, you could make that argument. Uh, the the story I always like to tell about the American auto industry, in fact, is, you know, when I was a kid, 
the store the story always went well buy from American firms because when the car breaks down it'll be much easier for you to get parts right, right. <laughs> and then the right. Japanese came up with this great idea why don't we make cars that don't break down <laughs> what a concept <laughs> right <laughs> so tell me how does one what uh, you listed just just now some of the key aspects that are really reshaping the world today but what do you think are the biggest driving forces that that really are shaking things up for for organizations that people really need to think about well clearly digitization has vastly multiplied the business models that are possible uh, and I think that's one big thing. And people all talk about the digital revolution, but I don't think they really understand what's really behind it. And what's behind it is a lot of things that needed to be coordinated by organizations in the past can now be done by two guys in a garage because what you right. basically got is access to assets rather than ownership of assets. So the thought that some somebody with access to digital platforms could be Doing business globally, you know, 30 years ago would have been inconceivable. You know, you would have had to have regional leaders and you would have had to have people in place and and that kind of thing. Um, And today, digitization has just made that reach so much more possible. So if you wanted to create a company tomorrow that could compete with a global 500 company and do it at scale, you know, well, you get your programmers from, um, you know, what used to be Odesk, I think that they have a different name now, but you get your computer capacity from Amazon Web Services, you can rent just about anything else that you need, and you can actually go into business at global exponential scale. So that's one that has a lot of secondary effects, for example, the speed of change that's facilitated, the, the fact that different industries are now competing with each other. So competition is now crossing industry boundaries. Um, clearly, the fact that you have players all over the world now able to interact uh, and, and to supply one another operating remotely uh, is, is just amazing. So there are a lot of forces, I think, that we, we call things like digitization or globalization, but I don't think we really have great names for the actual impact that it has on companies. So, Rita, you were just telling me about uh, some of the really big changes. We were talking about the auto industry. So what what, what was your last uh, big thought there? Well, the last thought was that what we call shorthand, you know, digitization, globalization, right. uh, so forth, and um, it, it, the real effects that, uh, that directly affect companies are not, things that I think many people understand. So in in academic theory, we have this idea of um, markets versus hierarchies. And what that meant was that, you know, if if information is hard to get and expensive and not very transparent, if it's really expensive to create something, if the value of it isn't known, then you're really better off organizing as a corporation because you Mm. can sort of keep all that ambiguity under one corporate roof. Whereas if information moves quickly, if it's inexpensive to get, if prices are very transparent and value is very much known, then you can organize in a market and you can actually trade on that basis. So I think one of the subtle things that's happened in to companies is that things we used to take for granted as having to be done in an organization are now being done in markets. So Uber and Airbnb would be two just very perfect examples. examples. Yeah, where, you know, you used to have to actually build a hotel if you were going to rent hotel rooms, and you actually had to own a car if you were going to provide limo services. Um, And today those things are all being managed in markets. And so I think the boundaries of industries have become porous, and that's taken a lot of leaders by surprise. 
What do you think, you know, I've, I've had a lot of guests on who are in the uh, IT area from Silicon Valley. And, you know, their whole point of view is that there are businesses that are going to be going out of business like tomorrow and don't even realize it. Um, one of them is insurance industries. As people, mm-hmm. uh, you know, no longer driverless cars, you know. So what, what's that going to do to people that are insuring drivers of cars? Right. right. So, so what, what do you see in those lines, Rita? Well, I see a lot of disintermediation of existing yeah. business models. I mean, that's pretty clear. Um, you know, I was at an insurance industry conference, ironically, a couple of months ago, and it's a part of the business, very traditional, relies on brokers right. and so forth. And so I said to them, well, you know, what are you guys going to do when the millennials take over making insurance buying decisions? They're not going to want to work with a broker. And I, you, could, you would have thought I let a stink bomb off in the room. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. It was, it was pretty grim. Um, but the reality is that, I mean, to your, to your, I don't know if you have kids, but if they were, you know, people that age, do we know that they they want to do business with brokers, or don't they just want to sort of talk to their device or make a couple of clicks on the internet and boom, you're done? And boom, you're <laughs> right? done, right? So um, yeah, so I think uh, that that the, the assumptions we have about how our industry structures are the way they are are really being shaken up. So, for instance, yeah. a lot of manufacturers. Um, have typically used distributors to distribute stuff. Well, why did they do that? Well, because it's not really their business model and it's expensive and distributors can spread their costs over lots of manufacturers, so it's cheaper for them. But all that logic goes away completely when you have seamless um, ability to intermediate uh, what, what used to have to be very complicated and expensive. Yeah. Well, I, another perfect example of that is uh, getting mortgages. You know, you mm-hmm. go to Wells Fargo today, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just picking any bank. I just happen to say that name. But, you know, you, you pick a traditional bank and it's going to take you six, eight months, you know, to get a mortgage and go through the screening. And now there's other organizations that will give you a mortgage a couple of clicks. Yep. Uh, that yep. doesn't mean that they're, that they're less uh, rigorous. It just means it's yeah. easier to do. They're doing it in a different way. I mean, one of the huge changes that I think is going to hit a lot of these service and information-based businesses is that we're going from a world where you have to rely on statistical extrapolation mm. to a world of big data where you, have, you actually have the population. You don't need to do statistics. You can, you can right. count how many noses there are. And right. that's going to be a sea change for business models in things like pension, uh, contracting, uh, risk underwriting, you know, any business that is expert at, at managing things statistically is going to find itself in a big challenge. Right. Well, you know, the other thing, uh, you're familiar with Davos, obviously, and, and, and many of the reports that have been coming out of Davos relative to the world of work have been saying that the white-collar worker is going to be disintermediated in this era the way the blue-collar worker was in the mid, uh, mid-century mid 20th century and, and, and going forward because many of those jobs can be done through algorithms that that's were right. not able to be done before. I mean, your thoughts on that? Oh, I think that's a very real concern. In fact, I was talking with the CEO of a major, major technological organization just this morning, and the two of us were looking at, you know, one aspect was this, this presence of algorithms, right? So why do you need a human being to think it through when the algorithm tells you what the answer is? Right. But the other big advantage, advances in robots um, so, you know, a lot of jo- jobs in the last 20 years have been offshored. Well, many companies, such as GE, for example, are reshoring them. Right. Um, but when they're coming back into the U.S., they're coming back with far fewer workers because of, you know, things have been robotized or programmed or otherwise, 
you know, they're able to do them now because labor is such a smaller share of the total cost of running a plant. Yeah. What do you think that's going to do to the workforce overall? Well, um, unfortunately, I think it's it's going to be exacerbating the tale of two cities phenomena that we have right mm. now, which is right. if you're a highly skilled worker. I mean, I was talking to one of my colleagues at Columbia the other day, and he knows of a developer who actually has an agent who decides where this guy's going to go work next, like like a rock star or a movie star, right? And and it's not unheard of for developers to be paid, you know, $500,000 a year, and that's before stock price appreciation and stuff. So if you have those kind of talents that are in scarce supply and very valuable to companies, the sky's the limit. But, yeah. you know, if you're somebody with a high school or a couple of years of community college degree and, you know, in the past maybe you got a job answering phones or, or you know, providing customer service or fixing things in a, in a garage, um, you know, a lot of those jobs are going to go away. So yeah. it's a very concerning thing, which is how do we prepare people um, and, and what responsibilities do we have to not see people get left behind? It's, it's a huge concern of mine, in, in, you know, because one of the things, like, I have kind of a glass half full, glass half empty thought on the way work is going to evolve in the future. And when I, when I look at the glass half full story, what I think about is, wow, you know, there are going to be a lot more jobs with tremendous amounts of flexibility. You can do them from anywhere. You can set your own hours because, you know, it's pretty much individualistic work you're doing. And then when you do want community, there are all these co-working spaces you can go and, you know, kind of get that vibe of being with other people and then go off and do your own thing. So the, the vision is kind of lots more flexibility, lots more career mobility. So even today we know, for example, that women and other underrepresented groups just have a much tougher time staying on a career track. Well, what if the track went away and what you had next is a series of projects? And yeah. you could decide to skip a cycle and come back in and nobody's... Nobody's going to make a decision you're not qualified because they know what your skills are. So that's kind of the glass half full part. And I think yeah. there are people And I'm going to ask you to hold right there. there. Rita, we're going to come back and let's talk about the glass half empty side after sure. this break. Stay with us. We're talking to Rita Gunther McGrath, professor from Columbia University. comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Dr. Linda Sharkey promotes fact-based solutions for global organizations and leaders that are known to drive business success. Do you want to put the wow in your talent practices? How about a spring in your leadership approaches? Coaching and leadership development are proven methods that, if done right, really do make good leaders great. If you want a no-nonsense, practical approach that will enable you to compete anywhere in the world with measurable results, contact Linda today. Visit lindasharkey.com. Again, that's lindasharkey.com. Game-changing technologies and strategies are transformational, exciting, and disruptive for a reason. They shake up your status quo. They get you thinking about new ways to scale, compete, and grow. They move you in amazing new directions. You're invited to take your coffee break with Game Changers on Wednesdays, 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time for our special series on game-changing HR leaders. Learn how you can become the savvy leader who takes your company across the finish line as you look ahead to the next wave of business innovation. 
Game-Changing HR Leaders, presented by SAP and America's SAP Users Group. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are tuned in to I Lead, the Leadership Connection. To speak to Dr. Linda Sharkey or her guest, please call in to 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or you can tweet the show at hashtag ILEADTLC. We'd also love to hear from you by email. The email address is radio at lindasharkey.com. Now, back to ILEAD, the Leadership Connection. Welcome back. I'm Linda Sharkey, your host of I Lead the Leadership Connection, and I'm having a great conversation with Rita Gunther McGrath, uh, a Columbia Business School professor, but someone who works with, you know, the leading companies in the world to talk about how to stay strategically competitive. And and, and what we're discussing is that the old models of strategy, you know, where you yearly look at your strategy model and you use the seven S's or you look at uh, other approaches that have been out there just are not going to cut it. What was exciting about before we took the break is, you know, this divide that we're beginning to see, and it's not beginning to see, it's been there for quite some time. A lot of the politicians are talking about it, but I don't think they're talking about it in a way that begins to think about how are we going to solve this. Mm-hmm. Um, we were talking about, you know, the glass half full, but a lot of jobs are going to be going away as we currently know them. And so, Rita, um, what do you see as the glass half full or half empty in this in this score? And what do we need to do about this? Well, the glass half empty part is, as I said, what we're already seeing, which is you know jobs without high skill levels are being rewarded less, and and not you know the pay isn't very good, and there's just sort of super pressure on the labor market without employers feeling that they can. Um, uh, you know, they're sort of treating their employees like disposable cogs on the theory right. that, well, you know, if one makes too many demands, we'll just replace them with another one. I actually don't think that's the right way to think about it, by the Me way. Me neither. Um, my, my colleague, uh, Zainab Tan, who's over at MIT, wrote a fabulous book called The Good Job Strategy, in which she argues that if you start thinking about your employees as units of possible revenue generation, you would treat them completely differently. And you would actually have much higher performance than companies, you know, the usual suspects, Walmart and McDonald's and so forth, right. that really treat people pretty badly. Um, at, a, at a social level, you know, you have to ask the question, why is it permissible that companies that are run for profit, whose executives make, you know, very... Bazillions money, of dollars... Right, millions of dollars are allowed to run a system in which their full-time employees are on public assistance. You know, I just, yeah. I, I don't, it's I don't understand how we as a society have allowed that to happen. But, but you know, I that's agree. kind of the glass half empty, which is yeah. a lot of the jobs that are going to be in generous supply, and in, unfortunately, a lot of the job growth in this country has been in these jobs where wages are just so low, and there's yeah. no real opportunity for a lot of these workers to escape that. And they never will escape it. But, but but here's the here's the central question though. Now a lot of the white collar jobs are going to be going away. That were good, high paying income jobs. There was a big discussion around you know like Wall Street and all the research analysts that are paid pretty well. I used to work on Wall Street, uh, but they're not needed anymore because algorithms can do a lot of mm-hmm. the things that that they're doing now. So so. 
the jobs that are high paying are going to be even more uber than they are today. So what's the thought about that? Well, I think that's a real realistic possibility. Now, the, 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 the counterweight to something like the Wall Street analyst is when your industry goes into a state of change, um, someone's going to have to reprogram all those algorithms and someone's yeah. going to have to figure out what the new patterns right. are. And right. at least as of yet, robots can't do that for us right. yet. Right, right, right. So there, are, right. there are things where you need a human being and you need that right. creativity of a human right. being. But that's an even higher skilled job, though. Well, right, right. So here's my question for you. What are educational institutions and companies, what do they need to do to sort of bridge this divide and and work on keeping jobs that are really not the low-paid McDonald's and Walmarts, but the sort of the middle-class engine that keeps people, keeps this country or has kept this country humming? Well, that's where I think Zainab Tan's work is so incredibly important because what she's illustrated is that you combine um, a good job strategy with high, highly um, developed operation skills. So you have people that are highly paid and motivated and, and self-actualizing combined with organizational systems that make the most of them. That's the magic. So it's not just pay people well and treat them nicely and all will be good. You have to, there's a little more work to it than that. So I think that's one from the point of view of the corporations, this treating people like, you know, disposable widgets, I just, it's one way of doing things, but I don't think it's a really healthy way of doing things. For as far as educational institutions are concerned, I think we are in an epic battle between the institutions that really want to run themselves for the benefit of their incumbents. That means the teachers and the employers, you know, right. and the, the teachers and the counselors and the administrators versus the ones that really want to run themselves for the benefit of the students. And there's just so much evidence out there that the quality of teaching, particularly as students are younger, just makes the most enormous difference. Um, I also think we, we don't use enough evidence in what we do to intervene with people who are kind of falling through the cracks. So there's a fantastic uh, not-for-profit in Baltimore called, uh, I think it's called Thread, and uh, or the thread, it's thread in it anyway somewhere. And what they do is they take ninth graders. So the prevailing logic is you have to catch people when they're about three months old or, or just abandon all hope, right? But what they do right. is they take these ninth graders. So these are people who would be about 13, 14 years old. Um, and they assign them a team of basically support people. And then they just surround these kids with whatever they need. So they need a ride to school, they get that. They need food, they get that. They need extra counseling, they get that. They need help preparing their college applications. But the critical breakthrough to me is unlike, say, Big Brothers, Big Sisters, which is also a wonderful organization that helps people out, it's a whole team. And so there might be, you know, a piano teacher who works on their musical skills. It might be somebody who's a part-time Uber driver who does the transportation. It might be a retired teacher who does the counseling. And so each kid has a team of like 8 to 12 helpers who work with that person to to just sort of fill up the, the places in their lives that they get that just make them vulnerable. And yeah. when you look at the lives a lot of these kids lead, they're, you know, they're one disaster away from being lost souls. You know, right. somebody loses a job, parents get divorced, they get evicted, you know, you name it. And, and any of those events can just throw somebody under the Decimated. bus of life. Absolutely. Yeah. And, so, and, and, you know, and they can, can be, never recoup. 
Well, they can. I mean, this is what I'm finding so completely encouraging about this organization is that with the right kind of support to get you through those years, um, you actually can, I forget the statistic, but it's over 90% of the students enrolled in their program who were, remember, failing students. They specifically picked students who were at the very bottom of performance in the ninth grade, and something like 90% of them went on to future higher education. I mean, that's just stunning. But when you look at what it takes, that's also stunning. And, you know, unfortunately, we've got a situation in a lot of our country where the, the, the traditional role that parents played has really changed a lot. And so a lot of those supports that people used to rely on their homes or their communities to provide um, just are no longer there. And, you know, I don't, I, I, I'm not a social critic particularly, but certainly the rise of single parent families, the fact that communities are not really as, as, as supporting in the institutions they have, you know, the churches and the, the neighborhood associations and all that kind of stuff. You know, with men, the majority of women in the workforce, a lot of the volunteer labor that kept those things going has been diverted to other purposes. Families in general are under a lot more stress. You know, if you've, if you've got two working parents, even if you've got two parents, both, if both right. of them are working and you've got a couple of kids, it's very stressful. So I think we are throwing up some big important social questions and you know as a strategist I can kind of work through what that all means for business what the right answer is I'm, I'm not entirely sure for for our society yeah so how are educational institutions you know I, I just recently uh, was talking to somebody else we were talking about MOOCs and you know educational institutions like Columbia wonderful schools but they're built on this bricks and mortar model and right. You know, not everybody, Rita, is going to have the opportunity to go on to higher education. In fact, I would argue that there's a huge dearth between those people that make it through to graduate school or college, you know, graduate school, postgraduate school, versus those people who are sort of stuck in that sort of lower end. What what do universities or colleges need to do to to make themselves more relevant in the society coming forward? Well, let me start with a statistic that I personally find very disturbing, um, which is I think the job was receptionists. And a researcher did a big survey of receptionists all over the country, and he found that um, only about 35% of them had a bachelor's degree. Then he did a mapping of all the job ads that were for receptionists in those same exact roles, and he found that something like 85% of the job ads required a bachelor's degree. Hmm. Um, Now, what that's telling you is a couple of things. First of all, we have dumbed down what a high school diploma means, and we have had credential creep in the higher education area. So a high school education years ago meant you could read and write at a reasonable level. You could conquer technical material. There was a a skill level that you were required to demonstrate to get a high school degree. And the people who were disadvantaged... (laughs) But wait a minute, but the people who are disadvantaged in that world were the high school dropouts, right? Right. But, you know, making it through high school meant other things to an employer. It meant you could count on a basic skill set. It meant these were people who came to class. They didn't, you know, resist. They weren't troublemakers. They performed their work because the, the criteria at high schools back then was much more rigorous, right? Right. And so not everybody graduated high school. So you could yeah. weed out the performers who graduated high school from the underperformers who didn't. Today, that's no longer the case. Um, high schools, you know, 
highly variable in how much discipline they impose on their students. And so what employers are doing now is they're saying, well, if we can't rely on the output of the high schools, let's just require a college degree. Because what that means is the kid showed up for class and, you know, stayed enrolled long enough to get some kind of degree. And so the content of the degree isn't what they're hiring on. It's the fact that it's these other attributes that employers are looking for that the degree represents. So to me, that's one huge issue because, you know, if I need a bachelor's degree to be a receptionist, you know, and I take on lots of college debt to do that, that's just crazy. It is crazy. Um, And that's not a knock against receptionists, but you don't need advanced skills to answer the phone and schedule appointments, right? That's exactly Um, right. So. So, so back to your original question, which is what a higher education institu- or education institutions need to do. Here, I would draw a distinction between the content of the material being um, conveyed and the application of the insight that you want from that content. So, content, and I get very unpopular at Columbia when I say that, but I'd say 90% of the content that needs to be taught in a university or even in a high school is a commodity. You know, if you want to learn how to do a Michael Porter's five forces analysis, there right. are plenty of ways you can do that. You do not need Michael Porter himself explaining that to you. Correct. <laughs> you know, um, however, to really understand whether you're applying it properly and whether there were other interpretations that could be made or to question the basic premises and boundary conditions, that requires human-to-human interaction. Right. So to me, what we need to start doing more of is figuring out where the content can be delivered in a cost-effective and relatively straightforward way, probably in digestible chunks, you know, of five or ten minutes each, so that we build mastery and we can test on mastery of content. And then the, the actions of teaching become, you know, argument, insight, let me challenge that point of view, why do you think that? So it's really the application. Um, yeah. In the younger uh, ages, people talk about flipped classrooms, um, where you, you know, you te- the homework is basically... You, you take a lesson from, say, um, the Khan Academy or something, and then you work on the project actually in the classroom with your teacher helping you. So instead of the teacher teaching, you go home and do your homework, come back and show that you've applied it, it's flipped around. It's the, yeah. the, the Khan Academy does the, teach, the, the quote, quote, teaching as in the content transmission, and then you work through the problems with the teacher as a coach. And yeah. so it comes back to coaching, right? Uh, that old notion of coaching, which I'm telling you, <laughs> I think is going to play a huge role going forward. Yes. yes, it will. Yes, it will. And, you know, there are, I mean, there are examples of systems which get it right. There's a, mm. a wonderful organization called A Year Up. Have you heard of them? No, I haven't. Tell me uh, about oh, it. Oh, they were started by this super successful finance financial guy who was in big brothers and, and big brothers i guess and had one of his um people that he was assigned to and he came to realize that this kid was just going nowhere in his life but that he was really smart he was passionate he knew how to do things he was you know just he had a lot going for him but what he didn't have was access to the kind of opportunities that somebody just and the way he describes it in his book somebody just 20 blocks up the island of manhattan uh would have as a matter of uh, taken for granted so what he developed was this fascinating institution young people apply they get put into a very rigorous um i think it's six months training program in things like computer coding and and whatnot. But not only that, they get taught things like how to show up on time and how to dress and how to speak mm-hmm. to people and how to how to eat properly so that you're not offending people with your table manners. I mean, just the whole range <laughs> of things these kids somehow messed at, missed out on. Yeah. And then what he has is... And people, some corporate. people don't think that's important, by the way. I happen to think uh, it's very important. Oh, it's huge. 
Yeah. Oh, you're telling me how you show up? You're a coach. You know how you show up doesn't make a difference. It makes a huge difference from the point of view of bias. Somebody comes and they don't know how to handle themselves at a, at a table. Mm-hmm. I, I, I mean, that shuts so many people down. Yeah. Oh, it really does. So, um, so what they do in this program, just to finish the thought, is they then, he uses his network of corporate connections mm. to find these students uh, of his internships. And so they're trained okay. and trained and trained and trained in the specifics of what the companies require. And then they're actually given internships. They have mentors who support them and coach them. Um, and then there's an opportunity for the companies to hire those that they find to be successful. And his record at placing these kids into decent jobs is is pretty remarkable. You know, I, we're we're coming up on break, and I, but I want to talk about this more when we come back. I mean, isn't that in a way? Because a lot of companies like Starbucks, others are doing these internships because they're seeing kids that they don't need somebody that necessarily has a MBA or, or you know a degree from Columbia or whatever. But they need people that have the skills and have learned how to integrate and interact and and do some of the stuff that the company really needs. I I think that's going to – I'm just wondering what your thoughts are about all of that and how that's going to impact higher education. So we're at break. I'm talking to Rita Gunther McGrath, an absolutely brilliant thinker about strategy and where things are going and education is going in the future. So stay with us. We're going to be talking more about that. You'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Dr. Linda Sharkey promotes fact-based solutions for global organizations and leaders that are known to drive business success. Do you want to put the wow in your talent practices? How about a spring in your leadership approaches? Coaching and leadership development are proven methods that, if done right, really do make good leaders great. If you want a no-nonsense, practical approach that will enable you to compete anywhere in the world with measurable results, contact Linda today. Visit lindasharkey.com. Again, that's lindasharkey.com. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Follow us on Twitter at Voice America TRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's Voice America TRN. tuned in to I Lead, The Leadership Connection. To speak to Dr. Linda Sharkey or her guest, please call in to 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or you can tweet the show at hashtag ILEADTLC. We'd also love to hear from you by email. The email address is radio at lindasharkey.com. Now, Back to I Lead, the Leadership Connection. 
Welcome back, and thanks, everyone, for staying with me. I'm talking to Rita Gunther-McGrath, professor at Columbia University, one of the preeminent, really, strategists in the world, and uh, has done a lot of work around how do you do strategy in this kind of upside-down, changing world where the old models, Michael Porter, 7S, all of these other things, just, uh, not to criticize Michael Porter, but just are not, uh, not, it's not that they're not sustainable, but the world has changed so much, and we've got to be faster about how we do this. We're talking about education. We're talking about internships that companies are offering. And what I wanted to ask you, Rita, is how are, uh, what role do you see companies playing in, uh, in this internships and in, in developing sort of that mid-tier worker uh, versus the universities, which was the model of the, of the 20th century? Well, I think the first observation I would make is that, and it's complex, right? Because companies used to bring in young people, and the assumption in a lot of cases, especially if they were being aimed at white-collar jobs, was that you improved your productivity by training them and developing them, and they would be loyal to you, and they would stay with you for a long time, right? right? And so what's happening now is companies are saying, well, wait a minute, with the increasing volatility in the workforce, so you take the millennial generation, just to yep. give an example, um, I could invest all this effort in training these people, and then they're just going to leave me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm actually, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spend money training them, and then my competitors are going to poach them, and there's right. nothing I can stop that. And what you see out of that is a couple of very interesting developments. One is the absolute proliferation of non-compete agreements, Yes, which yeah. is another way in which companies are disadvantaging their workers. So, you mm-hmm. know, daycare workers, hairdressers are getting non-compete agreements. Really? Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> I've written many in my, in my career, frankly. Um, but, but, you know, it, it just it makes no sense. So, so if I can't get another job with another employer, again, it reduces the leverage of the employee. So I think what's happened across a lot of industries, not all, but across a lot of them, is they bring people in, but they don't want to be responsible for training them. So they'd rather whine about not being able to get talented people at the prices they're willing to pay, but they're not willing to make the investment in training because their fear is there be, these people are going to move on and they're going to lose them. So and they are, the way frankly. I, well, they are, and, and and as I said, it's complex. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying they're being irrational, but what I am saying is the the net net for society is that nobody's taking responsibility for doing that. So the 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 entry level job is now being in many sectors completely replaced by multiple internships. Um, and you know, I'll talk about my daughter who graduated from Barnard College, you know, very well regarded school um, in 2012. And of her group of friends, I would say there's almost none of them that walked right into a, a traditional entry level job. They all did internships or practice sessions or yeah. you know whatever. And until they had enough experience um, that a company would say, okay, you know, you, you've done your learning on somebody else's dime. Now I'm going to hire you full time for the next step up. So the visual I use to think of this is it's like we've got these career ladders with the bottom three rungs knocked out, and they're being yeah. replaced by these internships. Now you know. Blessedly, my daughter had fabulous opportunities. I mean, she worked in the White House. She worked for Planned Parenthood. She's now um, an investigative analyst with the district attorney's office. So it's been very nice for her, and, and it was a good thing. But, you know, there are a lot of kids, first of all, who aren't going to get access to that kind of internship. Uh, that's uh, exactly also, right. And Rita, she's in an entirely get- different spectrum of life. You yeah. know, she, she she's not in the same spectrum of 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 
you know, that old middle class, really. Well, right. And, and so I think one of the really unfair things is if you're in a position where you really need to earn an income um, fast, right out of college, well, you can't dink around with two years' worth of internships. You know, you've got to get on with it. So what ends up happening is you take a job that, you know, or, or hopefully you get offered a job that you're qualified for, but chances are it's not in your chosen field. Chances are it doesn't have the same lift in terms of your exposure to you know, important people, your your networking capability. Um, I mean, I was just the other day talking to a young woman who trained, did, done a bachelor's degree in um, uh, media and, and, you know, commercial design, and her dream was to come to New York and be a copywriter, and she's literally cleaning houses because she can't yeah. afford to be wow. without an income. Yeah. You know? And not that there's anything wrong with that. As a, as no. A, but that wasn't what she paid. But you didn't need to spend $40,000 a year <laughs> to clean houses. Exactly. Right. You know, I mean, that's 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 the big. So so let's switch gears here a little bit. Let's talk about how do you see strategy being developed going forward? Um, Sure. Well, I think we're going from a world where strategy was a very analytical thing. So even today, if you talk to most of the people in strategy groups, in large organizations, a lot of what they call strategy is actually M&A, doing deals, um, you know, very analytical, paper-intensive kinds of things, like who should we buy and what, what, what not. Whereas I think the real heart of strategy is moving more and more towards pattern recognition, looking out a few years and really seeing where do we want to be, what markets seem to us to be, you know, the ones that are are, are becoming more important. And it's almost more intuitive and qualitative than it has been historically, which I think is a very interesting shift. Yeah, it is um, an interesting shift. So and if you go how? to really go famous ahead. work in, so if you go to really famous work in strategy, like uh, um, well, Clay Christensen's The Innovator right. Dilemma would be an interesting yep. case. A lot of those analytical tools are actually what creates the innovator's dilemma. <laughs> right, exactly. And we're just just this morning there was a huge piece um, on Intel laying off twelve thousand yes. people. Um, yep. Now, if you think about Intel, those 12,000 people are probably the smartest, the yep. most highly trained, the most highly yep. sophisticated people in the world, but they've been, right. that's been done for them on the trajectory of a semiconductor chip market that is going Correct. away. Which, um, which is going and, away. <laughs> right. And well, which, by the way, they, they knew was going away for quite some time. Well... Here's the thing, they, you know, and it is the innovator's dilemma. Like what happened to them was if you put it all into your analytical models, it doesn't make sense to take years and years and years to invest in a low power consumption chip that's in a completely different market when you actually own this highly lucrative, highly expensive um, chip chip manufacturing business that is now dominating the PC business. Um, So all the analytical tools that you could see were telling them that that was where it was going to go. Um, and so they declined Apple's offer to co-develop chips for the iPhone. They literally okay. turned it down. Um, and But if you had been a little more intuitive and said, wait a minute, you know, Apple is moving from being a technical product, a technology product, to being a lifestyle product. Right. You would oh, see interesting that, point. Sorry? I said very interesting point. Well, you know, because if you, if, you if you look at it through that lens, all of a sudden you say, whoa, wait a minute, it's not just going to be geeks that want these things on their desk. It's going to be everybody. It's going to be soccer moms. It's going to be, you know, children who are 12 years old. <laughs> it's going to be, you know, right. and if you start thinking about it in terms of those numbers, it looks like a completely different opportunity. Right. So that's the kind of thinking that I think we're going to start to see the successful companies of the future using more and more. So what do we need to do, Rita, from your point of view to close the gaps? In, in strategy or in yeah. 
Well, I think the first thing we need to do is take diverse points of view on problems. Um, a lot of strategy teams, even today, are very homogenous. So I would, I, you know, I don't know this, but I would venture to say that the strategy teams at Intel were, you know, white, highly trained engineers who took a right. very logical approach and to things. Primarily male, and I can, by the way, say that because I worked at Hewlett Packard for a lot of years. Uh-huh. So you know, the the the, the, re- the engineers were white and they were male. Mm-hmm. And and you know, not. To knock that against them, but they will tend to have a common point of view on the problems to be solved. Whereas, you know, throw in a teenager, throw in a woman, throw in somebody from a different nationality, and all of a sudden you're going to look at problems completely differently. So let me give an example of a a real screw-up that I think uh, could have easily been prevented with a little more diversity in thought process. Uh, And this is when Procter & Gamble decided to invent this technology that could do the cleaning equivalent of dry cleaning, but you did it at home. I think they called Mm -hmm. it dry L. And so here's the concept. You would take this chemical and you'd put it in your dryer and you'd throw your clothes in the dryer and it would tumble them around. And when they came out, they would be all clean and it would be like dry cleaning at home. Mm-hmm. And they all, you know, I can just see in my mind's eye this group of, it had to be male, you know, scientists sitting around going, my God, we've got this material that can take, you know, dry cleaning and do it at home. And isn't that going to be great? And what a cost savings. And it's going to be disruptive and yada, yada, yada. Well, ask the question, did any of them ever routinely take their dry cleaning to the dry cleaning <laughs> establishment? <laughs> because if they had, they would have realized that the getting the clothes clean is half the problem. The other problem right. is you want to get them pressed as well. And, so and, and looking, them, you know, spiffy, so to speak. Well, right. But if you, if you don't realize that that's a huge part of the value proposition and you go charging down this technology path, it can really lead you astray. So I think the first premise is kind of asking the question, who's involved in the strategy-making process? Are, are they diverse? The second one is what's the input into your mental models? So are you getting input from the level of the organization at which activities actually occur? So, you know, if you think about it, when was the last time the CEO pumped gas or, you know, handled luggage or was in a meeting on the phone with a customer where they were infurious about something that they hadn't done right? You know, CEOs are often very protected from these kinds of day-to-day interactions with customers. So you need to get that input into your decision-making process. They need to have an actual direct experience with what their company is doing. So I think that's, that's the second thing, which is are you getting the right kind of inputs into your strategy process? And then are you, you know, giving yourself enough of a time frame to really look out into the future and say, well, what are our fundamental assumptions about where we need to be uh, competing? And then to me, the framework that holds this all together is your framework around how you manage your portfolio of activities. And even today, very few companies are particularly sophisticated about this. So there was a recent McKinsey study which found that 86% of CEOs in a survey that they did said innovation was really important. 80% of them said their business models were going to be under um, attack. You know, their business models had some vulnerability to them. Right. And only 6% of that same population said that they were happy with their innovation performance. Amazing, so, isn't it? And that they didn't know what to do about it, right? Right. Um, and so I think we've got this sort of mandate to be innovative and to do new things, and at the same time, this kind of very uh, big gap between what we do every day and what it takes to really be innovative. Yeah. Um, so I'll add one other thing on where strategy is today. I think, you know, when I started in the field, 
the cool kids were all doing industry analysis, and they were working with the profit impact of market strategies database, and they were doing things like order of entry and how much yes. does market share matter and stuff like that, uh, all at the industry level. And people like me who were working on innovation were kind of doing case studies over in the corner, huddled together for warmth. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> and what's happened in the intervening few years is the two fields have really come together. And to the point where I don't think you can talk about strategy today without talking about innovation. And I don't think you can talk about innovation today without saying how it fits into your strategy. So the two really have overlapped a lot more than they had historically. Yeah, it's a brilliant observation. So we don't have very much time left, Rita, but I uh, would like to ask, we've got actually two minutes to close. So quickly, um, what are you working on now to help companies cope? Um, uh, some software to automate this innovation process and tie it to their portfolios. That's one big project. I'm also looking at a 10-year database of companies with detailed, detailed performance numbers so we can start to see if there are any new patterns there. And then I'm working on some online courses which companies will be able to take to sort of scale their innovation capability more quickly. Wow. That's exciting. So how do people get a hold of you, Rita? They can email me. It's um, right on my website, which is ritamcgrath.com. Uh, that's, that's one easy way. And uh, my email is rdm20 at uh, gsb.columbia.edu. Uh, and I'm right on the school directory there, so I'm pretty easy to find. Well, it's been a fascinating conversation with you today, Rita. And we we've sort of did a, a, a big... A swath of landscape in our conversation, uh-huh. which I greatly appreciated because they're all issues that are near and dear to my heart and uh, on my mind. But I knew that these are things that you're thinking about, too. So I want to personally thank you for being on the show today. I want to thank Marshall for introducing us. And uh, it was a, a great time we had uh, at dinner that time. It and really was. A- again, thank you so much. And um, I'm hoping that you'll be back on. I would enjoy that. We'll pick a different topic next time. Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) Thank you again, Rita. So I want to thank all of my listeners uh, for joining the show. Uh, We've had some really great discussions. We have some more coming up. Uh, Next week, I have the Senior Vice President, Michael uh, Derizin, from LinkedIn. And he's going to be talking about a fascinating conversation about how LinkedIn looks at their organization, how they're thinking about their own strategy, how they're using technology, uh, digitization, etc., to really drive some what I consider to be pretty substantial and powerful change in how we look at the gaps between skills and what employers really need. So... Uh, uh, Michael's just fantastic. I heard him speak. I was at a session with him uh, in Silicon Valley a while ago. So stay with us next week for that conversation and great conversation with Rita Gunther McGrath. Thanks so much for all my great listeners worldwide. Thank you for listening to this week's edition of I Lead, The Leadership Connection. Please join Dr. Linda Sharkey again for another show next Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Have a successful week.
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 